Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Melinda Wenner-Moyer is a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine and a regular contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, and other national magazines and newspapers. She is a faculty member in the Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Her first book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, was published in July 2021. Melinda was the recipient of the 2019 Bricker Award for Science Writing and Medicine, and her work was featured in the 2020 Best American Science and Nature Writing Anthology. She was also awarded a 2018 Alicia Patterson Foundation Fellowship. Moyer's work has won first place prizes in the Awards for Excellence in Healthcare Journalism, the Folio Eddy Awards, and the Annual Writing Awards of the American Society of Journalists and Authors. Her work has also been shortlisted for a James Beard Journalism Award, a National Academy of Sciences Communication Award, and a National Magazine Award. She has a master's in science, health, and environmental reporting from NYU, and a background in cell and molecular biology. She lives in New York's Hudson Valley with her husband, two children, and her dog. All right, Melinda Wenner-Moyer, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm great. How are you, Pete? I am very well, thanks. Uh, it's funny that we're talking about parenting today and children. I literally just got back from dropping off my uh, children at school, and I was seeing my oldest one off to grade seven, taking the city bus for the first time by herself. And uh, yeah, I wanted so badly to rescue her from those feelings. But as we're going to talk about today, there's a lot of downsides to that. We have to strike balances as parents between what we are feeling and what our child may need. Uh, I guess, you know, to that point, I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast today. Your new book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, is an amazing synthesis of really an absolutely astounding amount of literature around child development. I couldn't believe how many studies that you had been able to sort of go through and synthesize. I was really, really quite impressed. Uh, you know, these studies to do with child development, parenting, attachment, other related themes. I'm really, really looking forward to digging in on some of these questions that came up for me as I read the book. So again, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so... I think that the question that's begging to be asked right off the, the top is, is the title. It's very provocative. And, it, and perhaps that invites the question, you know, have you, have you yourself or is there data to suggest that there are indeed more assholes around that we need to be attuned to and that, that we need to sort of navigate as, as parents in terms of the creation of these said folks? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess I'll start by saying, you know, first I, I kind of, <sighs> I just had a feeling like I, I, I was feeling like there was more bad behavior around me as a parent. And that was what initially led me to start looking into this issue. Um, and honestly, if I, you know, it had something to do with Trump as our president in the U S um, and, you know, just seeing kind of the normalization of, of behavior, you know, bad behavior, like him saying, you know, racist and sexist things and, and bullying people, you know, on live TV, I saw those things and I just started wondering, you know, what, what impact is all of this having on kids and including my own kids? I have a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old now. And I just, you know, I just started thinking more and more about it and worrying more about it. And then I did start digging into, you know, what does the data say? Like, what do we know about bullying rates and hate crimes and, and other things? And it's hard to know for sure. And the research and the data that I found certainly, you know, weren't definitive that a lot of it were, um, you know, surveys of teachers, for instance, and kids and, you know, surveys, it's hard to know whether you're really seeing an increase when you see an increase in, in um, surveys, but, but there, there were data points that I thought were, were worrying and, and suggestive that yes, there's, there's a growing problem here. Um, there were several surveys I'd found conducted um, in like 2017, 2018, that um, the, in which teachers said, yes, I, we are seeing more bullying behavior um, and kids as well, students saying, yes, I feel like there's, there's more bad, you know, people are being meaner in school basically. Um, and there was even a really interesting study I thought um, that found that bullying rates had increased right around the time of the 2016 election, increased more in pro-Trump school districts than in pro-Clinton school districts, which I thought was really interesting and kind of backs up this idea that maybe, you know, kids who are 
maybe being exposed more to Trump's rhetoric um, through their parents or because the TV's on Fox News all the time here, they might be having some kind of impact. Um, and then there were um, other surveys of teachers right after the election. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center did a bunch of surveys um, and they found teachers um, saying, you know, we've heard actual, you know, we've heard kids parroting what what Trump had said, you know, using phrases like build a wall, uh, students chanting that in the cafeteria, or even like grab her by the pussy, that kind of thing. So, I mean, again, this is not definitive data here, show, you know, but it's suggestive that there was a growing, there is, has been a growing problem. And that is ultimately what led me to think, you know, there's a need for this book. I feel like, you know, there's, there's a reason to be concerned and there's a reason to dig into this research and try to translate, you know, what we know from child development about what, what does shape character and values and what we can do as parents, especially too, because I thought a lot of the research was surprising and counterintuitive. So much to unpack here. And I guess like, you know, any student of the human condition is going to quickly realize how complicated anything is. It's never one particular factor. It's the confluence of environment, genes, parenting, peers, you know, all, all these different things. I mean, I have to say, as someone who has two young children and, you know, I guess prior to COVID spent more time around groups of children, if I was to make an honest reflection on some of my impressions of some of the behavior that I was seeing without trying to get all high and mighty about it, it, it you know, it was fairly disappointing. You know, we're going to put a finer point on all of these, but Melinda, do you think there's something perhaps about the environment that either selects for or perhaps facilitates or allows sort of bad behavior to permeate in a way that's different, say, from maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I mean, there is, before I try to answer that, and I'm not sure I have a really good answer, uh, there is some evidence that, um, it, you know, if you look at the generations, um, like if you if you compare college students now to college students 10 years ago, there are differences in how they will answer certain questions about like, how much they care about other people. There was one study, yeah, that essentially, you know, asked college students in recent years and then 10 years before that, you know, how much do you think about other people, put yourself in other people's shoes, um, basically how much like empathy do you have? And they did find evidence that the college students have less empathy now than they did in the past. And so that is really interesting to suggest there are kind of, you know, so, something shifting. <laughs> um, and what is it that I think that's a really good question. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't have a good answer for that. I think there's certainly things that have like social media has become much more prevalent. And, and I know people are very concerned about the effects that could be having. Um, and, you know, is there just much more opportunity in a way for, for bullying because it's so much you know, easier to do it anonymously online. And, and is that bringing out the worst in us? And I don't know, you know, I, when I look at the research on social media and its impacts, on teens and, and kids, um, it's mixed. You know, some, some research suggests that, you know, it, it kind of depends on what you're doing with social media, whether you're using it passively or actively. Like, are you just looking at other people's feeds and feeling left out and, 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 and you know, feeling upset? Are you being bullied? Are you not? Are you using it to connect with friends and build relationships? And a lot of teens say, actually, we find social, you know, I find social media makes me happier and helps me uh, because it helps me maintain relationships. So, but I do wonder <laughs> whether, um, you know, having technology and, and having the opportunity in a way to be kind of aggressive and mean in, in a way that doesn't have the same consequences and the same sort of, you know, in-person responses might be making some kids uh, a little more unkind, but I, I don't know if I can say that that's been like proven to be true, you know? Well, I think it's a very reasonable hypothesis. I mean, if you're mean and aggressive online, there's really not that sort of instant feedback that we would typically rely on to moderate our behavior in our interactions with with others. Even even that sort of like a micro expression level, like, ooh, like you just get some sense of, ooh, I may have offended that person or or whatnot. I, I you know, you may be familiar with that saying, hurt people, hurt people. And it's a pet hypothesis. Again, I do not have data to support this, but I do think that the baseline level of anxiety and distress is rising with people. Social media is certainly not helping in, in some respects. And of course, one of the ways that we can cope with feeling anxious is to substitute that with anger and aggressive behavior because there's a numbing aspect to that we feel in control. I'm wondering how many people who are acting out behaving badly are, are actually, if, if you get underneath, they're actually extremely anxious. 
about the state of, you know, maybe their country, their life, their family, their future. And it, and it's coming out as sort of a fight response as opposed to maybe connecting with the feelings and being vulnerable about it. And then we can have reasonable discussions. I don't know what you think about that, but that's something I've been, I've been wondering about. It's like how much hurt is out there that is driving this bad behavior? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really great question. I mean, we certainly know from bullying research that a lot of kids who bully are kids who have been bullied before, you know, I mean, so I think there's absolutely evidence for that in the bullying literature. Um, I mean, even with my own kids, I have um, kids who are pretty anxious and certainly, you know, we, we've worked through it with, um, we've talked with psychologists to help my son, for instance. And, and when he feels really, really anxious, he, he manifests that by becoming more challenging and more, more difficult or more rigid and, and, and gets more upset at little things. And so I certainly agree that anxiety can manifest in people in ways that, you know, doesn't on the surface seem like it would be based in, you know, rooted in anxiety, but it can lead to so many kinds of behaviors that are, that are, yeah, that can be just hard to sort of figure out, but are really actually rooted in anxiety. So I think that's a really interesting hypothesis. Well, I can, I can say as a clinical psychologist, you know, very definitively that when you have clients that come in with say narcissism, the two core beliefs that are almost always active in them are emotional deprivation, i.e. no one's going to meet my, lo- my needs for love, nurturance, and empathy, and also defectiveness. And, and also, and so the way that people get their needs met who have those core beliefs or one way of getting your needs met when you have those core beliefs is to adopt entitlement as a strategy, right? So you'll say, Hey, no one, no, no one loves me. No one sees me. I'm defective. Unless I look out for number one, I'm never going to get anything. And so you see this kind of manifestation of, of, of bad behavior. So it's, and I, I think the interesting thing is how well many assholes are able to fool others about with respect to their personality style and type uh, when really the exact opposite is going on underneath. So they may appear very gregarious and confident uh, when really nothing could be further from the truth with, with respect to their internal sense of self. I, I just find it really fascinating. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, I find narcissism fascinating. And I think I kind of oversimplified it in my book because since then I've talked to other people about different kinds of narcissism and uh, it seems very complex Um but, you know, I'm, I'm actually curious now to ask you the question, because from what I what I included in the book about narcissism was, you know, really like what what do we know about the association between parenting and narcissism? And what I had kind of uncovered was that um, uh, parents who put their kids on pedestals all the time, um, that those kids are more likely to become narcissists. But that's interesting because that how does that fit in with sort of this well, what you were just saying with, you know, kids feeling defective? I'm, I'm curious, like, is there a relationship there or? So the way I would conceptualize that would be, I think kids are smart enough to know the difference between real praise and fake praise. And mm-hmm. so I think what happens when children get put on pedestals with sort of this fake praise for, Hey, you're amazing. You're number one. You're this, you're that, you're the, the other, other thing. And they know full well relative to their peer group that that's not the case. Right. It's, I think it creates this sort of this dissonance and this sense of, man, mom and dad think that I'm so insecure that they need to tell me I'm awesome. And we both know that I'm not as awesome as they are saying. So there's not a re- the child is not being seen and heard in some authentic way. And that contributes to the emotional deprivation. And then it contributes to that felt sense of defectiveness because you're not getting praise for who you actually are. You're getting praise for the idea of who you could be, of which you are not in that particular moment. So that's in a nutshell, that's how I would conceptualize that. Okay. That's really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. <laughs> no, no problem. No, narcissism is so fascinating again, because it, it's, it's a study in paradoxes, right? And, and all these different things that don't seem to make sense, but, but ultimately do. I have another question for you, I, sort of along the same line of what we were talking about before. You know, is there anything that's came up in your research with respect to what has changed the most around growing up, say in the in the seventies or eighties versus maybe, um, you know, currently, of course, every, there's that problem where every generation tends to think that the generation following them is deficient in some way. Um, but of course there, there could be, you know, aspects of that where there's a kernel of truth to it and things have really actually changed. So are there any distinct challenges or changes that you think children growing up now have to navigate that was maybe not true of the seventies or eighties? Yeah, well, certainly, and we already touched upon technology. I think another thing that has changed a lot is just um, like philosophies on parenting have really shifted in the sense that I think that there's a lot more sort of 
um, involvement, parental involvement, protectiveness um, than there used to be. I mean, certainly anecdotally growing up in the seventies and eighties, like my, I was left alone a lot more, you know, I was bored a lot. I, there, I was not kind of overscheduled. Um, I mean, I certainly was busy with extracurriculars, but not to the degree that I think kids are now. I think there's, there's, and I think, I feel like it's rooted in fear and anxiety among parents who are really worried about, you know, how, competitive the world is now and how hard it is to get into college. Um, and also just, you know, we, with the internet, I feel like there's just a lot more fear about what the, you know, what, what the world could do to our kids. And so we are just so much more involved, I think, than parents used to be in our kids' lives. And to a degree that is not particularly constructive now where we, you know, we, do things for our kids. We don't like them to struggle. We don't want them to experience disappointment and challenges and failure. And when we, when we do this and we're overprotecting them in this way, I think we're actually really um, holding them back ultimately and, um, and making them less resilient. And, and so I think this is something that I, I certainly struggle with as a parent where I do have that instinct to like rescue my kids all the time. Um, in fact, one of my friends texted me yesterday saying, oh my gosh, my son forgot to bring his Chromebook to school today and everything in my body wants me to drive it over there to him and, and, you know, rescue him from being, <laughs> yeah. to get, getting into trouble for this. And she said, but I, but I just finished that part of your book and I'm making myself stay home. And I know that this will be better, but like, I feel like so much of us, we just, we, 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 we want to jump in and, and, and fix everything for our kids in a way. And I don't know why that is, but I do think it's rooted in, in a form of like anxiety or fear for our kids. Well, I couldn't agree more. My wife and I often reflect on having grown up in the eighties and we often ask ourselves in a, in a parenting dilemma, what would the eighties tell us to do? And then, and then we try, <laughs> we, we try to do that. And I don't know, I have this, again, pet hypothesis. I think Gen X is, is going to save the world on some level because of all the, you know, we were all latchkey kids and I wouldn't say left our own devices. That's probably a bit hyperbolic, but you know, there was a certain amount of independence that was expected and kind of curated that I think there's a certain resilience, um, you know, that's not often talked about in Gen Xers that I believe is there. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. Yep. Uh, Melinda, you had some really interesting things to say around the link between being generous uh, and successful. And sometimes that's sort of counterintuitive, right? There's a sense that, you know, you got to look out for number one and this, that, and the other thing if you want to be successful. But, you know, this links up really nicely with what we see in the animal literature, in particular, looking at uh, primates like chimpanzees. You can have a sort of dictator chimpanzee who's big and strong and he'll stick around for a little bit, but ultimately the other chimps will literally rip them apart. Uh, four or five males will get together and, and tear them down. And it's the benevolent dictators uh, they're still a leader, but there's a benevolent dictator who uh, who can establish themselves and they can stick around for a long, long time. And, you know, there's Robert Sapolsky, who if listeners might have heard of him, has done some really, really interesting uh, work, I believe, with baboons primarily, but same sort of patterns hold. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you learned about the link between generosity and success? I think that's such an important lesson for folks to download. Yeah. And I did not know this um, about the animal research. So that is fascinating. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. So um, this is a question that I started getting asked by parents when I even just started researching the book, including my dad saying, do you really want to write a book about fostering kindness? Because, you know, isn't kindness going to hold kids back? Like, don't we really just, don't we need our kids to be aggressive and assertive and kind of cutthroat and obnoxious if they're going to succeed in this world. And again, I think this is kind of rooted in this anxiety of like, how are we going to make sure our kids succeed in this very competitive world? Um, and so I, I, from the very beginning, started looking at, you know, what does the research say on this? Is this true? Like, do really, you know, kind people get walked all over and get held back? And what I found was the complete opposite. Um, I, I wish we had more research on this, but the research I found really supported the idea that actually, you know, the most successful people are the most generous and the most kind. Um, certainly there are like short-term outliers, like, like Donald Trump and like the dictator chimpanzees, but, um, but uh, over, you know, if you look at the averages and you look at how things really work out in the end, the kindest, the kindest people end up doing the best. And so one particular study that I, um, actually there are a couple that are very similar where they followed kindergarten um, boys, I think for, for 20 years. And they, the researchers um, 
surveyed, I think teachers and, and, um, and parents on, you know, how were these, how kind were these boys and how helpful, helpful were they in the classroom? And then they tracked them for 20 years and looked at, you know, how are they doing when they were 25 and found that the boys who were the most kind, the most helpful in kindergarten ended up earning the most money when they were adults. So I thought that was just a great illustration of this. And Adam Grant, um, his book, Give and Take, he's um, a, a Wharton School professor and, and you know he really digs into like what makes people successful. And his whole premise for that book is essentially like the, the kindest, most generous people end up being the most successful. So I think we can really put this idea to rest, <laughs> that, that you have to raise your kids to be, you know, aggressive and cutthroat in order for them to succeed. I really, really don't think that's true. Yeah, I agree. At an intuitive, clinical and data driven level, that seems to be seems to be true. You know, there's those sayings out there like good guys always finish last or things like that. But it actually doesn't seem to be true. It might not be true in the next 30 seconds, but in the next 30 months, that seems to be the in aggregate outcome of of, of kindness. I mean, I think it just speaks to how socially wired and dependent we are uh, on each other and no man or woman is an island. Uh, you, you have to be attuned to what's going on around you if you are to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And a person on a personal level, I I love having uncovered this because I'm not a super assertive person. You know, I'm just not one of those cutthroat people. And so I was really happy to see, oh, you know what? That's okay. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter, you know, and it's neither are my kids really. They're kind of, you know, like quieter kids. And it that's gonna be great. <laughs> absolutely. Uh Melinda, to my eye, there's been an, a really unhealthy fixation on self-esteem. And the way that I've read the literature is that it's not so much self-esteem that determines a child's contentedness or happiness, but their ability to regulate emotions or control impulses. And the, I think the idea forming here is that if you're able to regulate your emotions and regulate your impulses, you're going to be successful in various undertakings that you might engage in like school or uh, friend relationships or you know your part-time job or whatever. And those successful outcomes are going to be the factor that allows you to experience self-esteem. You sort of earn it through your ability to regulate, you have good outcomes in life, and then you experience self-esteem. It's not something we can sort of simply just tell children, hey, you're amazing. And they're like, oh, that's great. They have to see that self-esteem being earned in a sense. So appreciating this might just be, you know, wild speculation on your part. As someone who has waded through so much literature on children and, and parenting and attachment and, and well-being, what do you think about this idea of, you know, the focus on self-esteem perhaps being slightly misplaced at the expense of perhaps emphasizing more impulse control and emotion regulation to get those outcomes that allow self-esteem to take hold? Yeah, well, I certainly agree that um, we have put a lot of emphasis on self-esteem <laughs> um, uh, in the West and that this is maybe not the um, not supported by the research. I mean, if if you look at the relationship between self-esteem as it's being measured and outcomes, you know, there's this idea that if, if you foster healthy self-esteem in your kids, they're never going to get into trouble. They're never going to do drugs. They're never going to cheat or steal. You know, they're, they're going to be happy and perfect. And the research does not back that up. I mean, kids can have healthy self-esteem and still make mistakes and, and still, you know, get into trouble and, and all these things. So this idea that self-esteem having health, healthy self-esteem is like a panacea, I think is really not a, not a great idea. And it's not borne out by the research. So, and I certainly agree with that. And I, I also really agree that emotion regulation is really important for so many things in life. Um, I kept coming across this and I think, you know, one of my, I think my first chapter really focuses on the importance of of what, of how to foster emotion regulation in kids and the importance of talking about feelings, allowing your kids to have feelings. Um, and that's because I kept stumbling across over and over again in different areas of child development, this link between having, you know, healthy emotional regulation and all sorts of good outcomes. I mean, you know, to, to these, like even things like boys who can, um, who can manage their emotions better are less likely to commit sexual assault or less likely, you know, all sorts of links there. Um, so I, I absolutely agree that this is hugely important. And I think it's really interesting, your um, idea that maybe, you know, ultimately this emotion regulation might be the basis for healthy self-esteem, like that there's a link there. You know, I, I think that's really, really interesting. Um, 
I don't know that I saw research linking them directly, but it certainly makes sense. Um, and you know, another thing I feel like kept coming up in the self-esteem literature, and I don't want to say that, you know, self-esteem isn't important at all because I think it is, um, and I don't mean to sort of gloss over it in that way, but, um, that also just just feeling unconditionally loved, I think also is important. So, I, and, and that might, I wonder whether there's like a relationship there. I feel like there is between emotion regulation and this feeling of being loved in a way, like allow, being allowed to have your feelings and being allowed to, you know, experience what you experience might be related. But yeah, I think this is all, I think it's really, really interesting. And I think, and it makes a lot of sense to me. I really like what you just said about, uh, you know, the parents being a big contributor to the child's emotion, ability to regulate their emotions, perhaps mediated through the attachment style. And, you know, as psychologists, you know, we, uh, we're very attuned to sort of uh, parental attunement. So when a child is emitting a certain set of signals, is the parent able to download and interpret what's going on with the child accurately? And sometimes it's very difficult, of course, if your child's sitting sort of quiet and sullen, it's sort of hard to know what's going on. Uh, I had a child psychologist colleague on the podcast, Dr. Jennifer Carp, and I thought she just had so many great things to say. And she talked about how even if you don't know, it's sometimes better just to take a guess about what's going on with your child so they'll have some sense that you are working to figure out what's going on with them. And then when there's a resonance between your attunement and what's going on with them, that helps them to regulate. They're like, oh, I've been seen and heard. I don't have to act out now. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do all these kind of what sometimes look like a really strange things or a mismatch between what's being felt inside and the, and the behavior outside. So anyway, to your point, I think that unconditional love combined with attunement goes so far to creating a concept of emotion regulation in children. Yeah, that makes sense. It does all fit together. And I mean, it really, that does make sense to me. Um, and yeah, what you just said about when kids don't feel heard, then they kind of have to act out more, communicate it more. I think that makes so much sense too. And I, I was just talking with a, a child psychologist who was making that point to me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, unfortunately, and, and we mean well, but I think a lot of times in our attempt to make our kids feel better, we want to, we want to rescue them from their feelings. We want to basically say, you don't, you shouldn't have those feelings. Like you don't need to have those negative feelings. You don't need to be upset. You shouldn't be upset. Um, and we, we mean, well, we're trying to make them feel better, but ultimately it, it really is the opposite. I mean, we are kind of denying them of, of what they're, I mean, you, you, what you feel is what you feel and, and you can't rationalize yourself out of it. And so to say, you know, don't feel this way is sort of like a rejection on some level of, of, of who you are. Um, so we really should be doing the opposite and, you know, acknowledging and validating those feelings and, you know, basically saying to our kids, I hear you. It's okay that you feel this way. I still love you, you know, et cetera. Exactly. When, when you see clients that are anxious as adults, it tells you a lot about what internal feelings were not acceptable within the family because they become anxious because, oh, like anger's coming up, jealousy's coming up, disappointment's coming up. And the message I got when I was a child that those were unacceptable. And now I feel anxious because if I have these feelings, I'm going to lose the attachment with my parent. So mm -hmm. this, this broadband experience of anxiety, I mean, not always, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's many roads to anxiety, but a common pathway is that it's the emergence of internal feelings. There's a sense that they won't be validated in the environment. And so anxiety comes in to sort of manage the uncertainty and fill in the gap. It is just amazing how, how much nuance there is to this stuff. No wonder parenting is so, so difficult, my Lord. Yeah. It, it, yeah. You, you know, I, I think as a parent, I subscribe to the school of thought that as the little piece of society that's in my house, uh, it's my obligation to provide my children feedback when their behavior is adversely affecting others, or frankly, just rendering spending time with them unpleasant. You know, obviously, like every parent, I want to attain or attain and maintain a really close attachment with them and have that unconditional love. Uh, and I certainly would never advocate anyone being cruel or mean. But what do you think about the role of frank, honest feedback as part of our role as parents, you know, not only do we want to reinforce the good, but sometimes we, it feels like we need to let them know, let them know about the bad as well. Yeah, I completely agree with this. I think, um, I mean, it, it's kind of like natural consequences in a way. I, if our kids are difficult to play with, they're going to experience this from their peers. Their peers are going to not want to play with them as much, not want to spend time with them. And so I think, you know, we should be kind of 
creating a similar situation at home where if our kids, you know, I, I think if, if our kids are really making it difficult to be around them, it's okay to communicate that as long as we focus on the behavior and not on, you know, the person. Um, so when I was you know, digging into um, parenting styles, one of the really big differences between the the, you know, quote unquote, the, the best parenting style, authoritative parenting, I mean, best meaning like the research really suggests that it's associated with the best outcomes and the not so great authoritarian parenting, which is much more harsh. One of the key differences is um, that authoritative parents really focus on behavior and they will, you know, give feedback on behavior about, you know, the choices a child makes, the things, you know, what, what they're doing. And authoritarian parents often focus on make it about the person. Like you're a bad kid because you did this, or you're, you know, I'm embarrassed to be your parent because you've done this thing. And so those kinds of that psychological control that is not constructive and it really harms self-esteem among other things. But, um, I think it's really important to be giving behavioral feedback and saying, you know, gosh, it's really hard to be around you when you're (laughs) when you're screaming this loudly or when you're, you know, doing this thing, it's really hard to play games with you. If you cheat, um, it makes me not want to play. You know, these are really important things that I think, you know, this is the way the world works and our kids need to understand that their behavior has consequences. And I also think, um, there's other research that kind of backs this up in a sort of indirect way. I was really interested in the research on induction and inductive discipline, which is essentially, um, connecting kids choices and behaviors with their effects on other people. And so this research, uh, research on induction really suggests that when we can give, um, when we can make these links, like when one example I give in my book is like, instead of just saying, please clean up your Legos, I will say like, please clean up your Legos or else I'm going to step on one and it's really going to hurt me. And so I'm constantly trying to figure out a way to make requests of my kids or to talk about their behavior in terms of its effects on other people. And I think when we do this, it's very helpful for, you know, making sure that our kids think of other people for, for developing um, a skill called theory of mind. I think it's quite important, which is the ability to put yourself in other people's shoes essentially, and, and consider other people's perspectives. Um, So that's another way of sort of giving feedback is kind of is linking what they're doing with how it affects either you or other people or, um, and, and the research really does show that that, that kind of discipline can make kids more generous, more kind, and just more, I guess, more thoughtful of others. And it makes sense, right? <laughs> if you are emphasizing how they're affecting others, then they're going to start thinking about others when they make choices. And that's, that's really ultimately what we want. So I think, I think it is really important for parents to give this kind of natural feedback to our kids. No, that makes a ton of sense. I find as a parent, it's always hard because I, while I want to communicate the impact on me, I do not want the, I do not want to convey a sense of ownership that they must take care of me in that sense. You know, it's, Hey, like, you know, your behavior is making me feel really anxious or upset. Like on some level, that's my issue. You know, I, I have to be the one to sort that out. I do not want them to become caretakers of you know, dad's well-being, but there is a consequence to in there as well. So I guess like anything, there's some balance in there between articulating the consequence, but not making it so that they have to necessarily take care of you. And again, I'm not a parenting expert by any means, but I always find that a very difficult conundrum to kind of wade through in in the moment. Yeah, I agree. I, and I don't really have a, <laughs> a good way of thinking that through or a good solution to that problem, but I agree it, it is a balance and you have to I feel like with a lot of the parenting approaches that are supported by the research, you know, there's still, there's, there's still a balance you have to strive for because almost like too much of something is, is almost never going to be good too. So yeah, you, you do have to, you do have to be careful. I mean, I, I also talk a lot in the book about um, sharing, you know, your own life as an adult with your kids, like, you know, if you had a tough day at work, it's sometimes good to talk to your kids about that and what you did to get through it. But at the same time, if you're constantly (laughs) talking about the problems that you're experiencing, your kid may take, interpret that as you want them to fix your problems. And that's not something you want. So it's always this sort of delicate balance of, yeah, uh, you know, being open and sharing this information can be really helpful to a degree, but you also, you don't want to burden your kids and you don't want to be putting, um, too much on them or make them feel it's their responsibility to sort of fix your problems or to fix everybody's problems. It's, it's really hard. (laughs) It it sure is. And I want to pick up a little bit more on this uh, aspect of responsibility. I mean, nobody of course wants to overwhelm their children, 
but responsibility also seems to be key to creating tolerable adults. Uh, and I thought you had a really nice treatment of this in the book. Uh, what is the balance and how do we implement this strategy of asking children to bear responsibility? Um, you know, as a clinician, we always talk about, uh, you know, bearing responsibility and the subsequent discomfort is often the price of admission to a meaningful life. You have to be willing to take on tough things in order to realize meaning in one's life. So yeah, how do you think about responsibility and, and how do we apply that? And, and, you know, how does that, how could and should that play out perhaps in a parenting child interaction? Yeah, I think, I mean, we talked already about the the idea that parents today might be a little too overprotective. Um, and we, we are afraid of our kids experiencing failure and challenges. Um, and, and I think responsibility fits in there too. Like we, we just don't want to, um, we want to make their lives easier. And in doing that, sometimes we don't let them experience the responsibilities that I think are really important for kids to experience in order to become resilient. Um, I think so. I talk a lot about um, fixed and growth mindset in my, in my book. And I feel like that's, that's related to this. There's when it can be very helpful. So growth mindset, um, well, fixed mindset is essentially like the way we praise our kids. If we praise them for their skills or their ability, we say something like you're really good at math or you're really, you know, um, you're really smart. Um, These can these kinds of praise can sometimes backfire because um, then kids think, well, this is like a black and white thing. I either have this or I don't. And if they encounter a challenge or failure, they then start to doubt that they had that trait or they had that, you know, if I, if I don't do well in a math test, I'm no longer good at math. And gosh, if I'm not good at math and there's not much I can do about it. And they, they're more likely to give up. But if we use growth mindset language, which is really praising for effort and tying effort to outcome, then we kind of normalize and put a whole different perspective on challenges and failures because suddenly becoming, you know, being good at math is not something you are or you aren't. It's something you learn how to do through practice and by overcoming challenges and by, you know, encountering failure. And you have to, you have to go through these challenges in order to grow your brain and get better at something. And so um, I think, I feel like I'm kind of, getting to your question, but in a roundabout way, I, th- I think that in a way it's really helpful for us to normalize difficulty and disappointment and challenges and to frame those as growth opportunities, as ways, you know, things we can learn from and things that make us stronger um, instead of protecting them from those disappointments and, you know, doing things for them so that life isn't as hard and they don't have to do as much because those ultimately are going to hold them back because I mean, our kids are going to experience difficulties. They're going to experience challenges. We can't protect them forever. And what we want is when we, when they get to that point, we want them to know how to handle and know how to problem solve and know that this is not, you know, going to ruin them and to have experienced them with our support before. And so I think sometimes I think, you know, we should be putting more on our kids than we, than our instincts (laughs) tell us to, because then, you know, we're there to support them as they're going through those things. We can give them the strategies to get through it. And then when they encounter them later on in life, they handle them with grace. Um, I don't know if I really answered your question or if I kind of was getting at it in a roundabout way, but (laughs) no, absolutely. No, I I think that speaks very, very directly to it. If I think about all the, the best experiences in my life have been the worst ones in the moment from a, from a wisdom procurement perspective or from a, you know, just a perspective perspective. Um, if that makes sense, I believe I saw a survey once I'm going to get this sort of wrong, but I'll get it right enough where if people were asked to put a price on, if someone wanted to buy knowledge from them, what kind of a price would they put on the different experiences that they've had? And the most expensive items that people would uh, could buy would be the worst experiences that people have been through because of the meaning, the knowledge, and the, the the wisdom that they were able to download from those experiences. So I think we greatly underestimate kids' capacity to cope. And we also, and again, with all caveats there, I'm not suggesting that we, you know, overburden children or obviously a common sense approach. And I think we, we really underestimate the value of challenge, adversity, and sort of healthy struggle in the formation of an identity and a sense of resilience. Right. And it, and it all also relates to self-esteem and self-efficacy. And there's, there's research suggesting that, you know, kids, when 
parents do kids homework for them or help them with their homework, those kids feel like their parents essentially think that they can't do it. And they, they feel as if their parents don't believe in them. And that is going to affect their, their sense of self-efficacy and their self-esteem. And so when we, when we expect that they can handle something and we give them that opportunity, that's also a signal, you know, they, they recognize that we as parents then have faith in them and trust them. And that is going to help them, you know, develop that feeling of self-efficacy as well. Like I, my parents think I can do this. I, I, maybe I can do this. Let's see. You know? So I think that's also important to keep in mind. Totally agree. I think that messaging of confidence and Hey, like we're going to tolerate the uncertainty and we're going to trust that you can do this. I think is a really important message just as a really quick aside, when, when I'm meeting with clients, when I tell them about, you know, anxiety, I say the formula for anxiety is basically the, the risk divided by the resource. And often our anxious mind is very good at coming up with what the risk is, but we very often don't consider the resources that we have to bring to bear to offset the risk. So the, the ratio ideally would be one to one, but oftentimes it's just whatever the risk is. And we don't even think about the resources we might have to bring to bear. So helping children to cultivate experiences that generate that sense of a resource to offset risk is one way of, again, getting around experiencing untoward anxiety. Mm, that's really interesting way of putting it. Yeah. I like that. It's the, it's the one bit of math I do understand. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> Melinda, one of the most difficult things about managing uh, people in my experience is when people are unable to take feedback or to take ownership of things that have happened. And sometimes if you're met with a lie about what's happened, even when you have evidence to the contrary, that can really rupture a relationship. It erodes a sense of trust, makes it di very difficult to kind of move forward in that relationship. Uh, there was quite a bit that you had to say on lying in the book. And I'd be curious if perhaps in a nutshell, you wanted to outline some of maybe, maybe the major findings or some of the take-homes around lying and perhaps what we can do to facilitate more constructive uh, discussions around difficult things where there might be a temptation to lie or, or to put one need above another. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, the lying research is interesting. I guess first I just want to say it's completely normal for kids to lie <laughs> and all kids lie. Um, <laughs> all adults lie all adult, as, well, as well. Exactly. So I think that's really the crux of it. There's so, there's so many ways in which I think we lie and our culture normalizes certain kinds of lies that we aren't really aware of sometimes, but our kids certainly pick up on, um, you know, the little things like when, um, when, uh, like somebody calls to try to sell you something in the, at 5 PM and you lie and say, I'm in the middle of a work call, or I, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of dinner and this is not a good time. There are all these sort of, they seem very harmless, the lies that we, that we use all the time, but our, our kids will notice that we're lying. And the research suggests that when kids observe adults lying, they are much more likely to lie themselves because yeah, it's normalizing it. It's saying everybody does this. This is okay to do. My parents do this. So why can't I do it too? So I think on, on, if we want our kids to be honest, we really also have to look at ourselves and think about the ways in which we might not be perfectly honest. Sometimes one anecdote that I include in my book, um, which I thought was so funny was, uh, when my I, we had promised my kids, we promised our kids, we would take them to an indoor playground. This was before the pandemic, um, on like a Saturday morning. And then Saturday morning we all woke up and my daughter had a fever. And so of course she wasn't going to be able to go to this indoor playground. And my son was, was heartbroken that he wasn't going to be able to go too. And my husband said to him, took him aside basically and said, Hey, you know, let's tell mom and, uh, and, and your sister that we're going to just run some errands and really I'll take you to the indoor playground. And he, my son was mortified. He's like, dad, that's lying. You can't, what, well, that's really bad. And you know, my husband hadn't really thought of it as lying. He was like trying to make my son happy, but in a way that didn't hurt my daughter's feelings. So there's all these ways we lie to protect other people. And, you know, these white lies when we tell our kids to tell, you know, aunt Gertrude that they loved the sweater that they got for Christmas when really they hate it. So I think if we want our kids to be honest, we do have to kind of turn the lens inward and think about the ways in which we are modeling dishonesty in our own home. Um, and either, you know, either we need to accept that if we're going to keep doing this, our kids are probably going to lie too, or we might want to try to be a little more honest and, and, or, you know, at least communicate about these lies and, and explain to our kids, you know, why we're doing it and what kinds of lies are okay. And what kinds aren't and have these conversations because otherwise our kids are just going to notice that we're not being honest and think this is, this is what grownups do. I guess I should start lying too. So, um, 
it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's a complicated thing. I think we think of like lying is so black and white and, you know, our kids should never lie, but we just have to look at the complexity actually of our culture and the fact that lying is a very big part of it. And we kind of have to face that and think about how are we going to deal with that with our kids and what are we going to show them? (laughs) It's hard. Parenting's hard. Uh, it, it sure is. I, I love that take. And I, I love the authenticity and the honesty in it. And I love the idea of maybe sort of providing a narrative or or taking, you know, our children behind the curtain a little bit when we hang up the phone and say, okay, you, you know, as well as I did that that's not true, but let me tell you, let me walk you through how I thought through that. And that won't necessarily make it okay. The child may still arrive at the judgment that, uh, yeah, that's a nice rationalization, dad, but that's still, you know, a, a lie and fair enough. But I think at least making some attempt to perhaps outline the bigger picture that you might be attuned to as an adult could be really helpful. Yeah. Cause it's complicated. It's it like, I mean, try, try telling the truth all day. I believe there's a, there's a movie about <laughs> this. Was it liar, liar? Or am I, yes. am I lying about that? Okay. No, I, I think remember. that's right. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, it's like it would be almost impossible to tell the truth all day. So yeah, there's a certain amount of grease that needs to be, you know, put in the wheels in order to make things run smoothly. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, Melinda, I have one more question for you, and then I want to give you the last word, uh, if that's okay. I have a lot of anxious parents who are clients who are petrified of, and I'm air quoting here, screwing up their kid. And, and, you know, of course, certainly this can and does happen through emotional neglect or abuse. However, over overparenting can be equally as harmful, uh, in my opinion. You know, Melinda, in the research that you did and that you looked at in, in the course of writing this book, how much margin uh, for error do you think that there is? How par- how worried in reality do parents need to be about sort of being the perfect parent in order to not create intolerable children? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there is no such thing as a perfect parent. And I have a lot of friends who are child psychologists. I mean, this is what they have studied. They have PhDs, you know, and they say, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. I'm constantly making mistakes. So if we think that there is this ideal that we can actually reach, that is like the perfect parent who knows how to handle every situation the most constructive way possible, that is just, it just doesn't exist. And I honestly think that sometimes the mistakes we make as parents, those are constructive because we can use those moments to have conversations with our kids, to, to model apologies. Like I, you know, when I, yell at my kids, which I still course sometimes do. I don't want to, but I do. Um, afterwards, you know, I feel like it's a, it's a really great parenting moment because I will go and I will apologize to my kids and say, I'm so sorry that I yelled at you. That was not that I I could have handled that situation a lot better. And sometimes then I will talk to them about like, what could I have done to handle it better? You know, should I, what could I have done to calm myself down? And, and we have these great conversations that, that stem from those mistakes. So I think perfect parenting doesn't exist. I think mistakes can be constructive. Um, And I also think the research suggests that, you know, there's never a point at which your child is like set in stone on some path and there's no way to change them. I mean, if you read something and you realize, gosh, maybe I haven't been handling this particular thing as constructively as possible, and you make a change at that moment and decide to handle it differently, that is going to have a positive impact on your child. Um, And that is, you know, that is that's going to be great from that point on. And your child will probably, you know, could change because of that constructive change that you've made. So I feel like it's, it's just, it's never, never too late. And um, yeah. And it's, and yeah, it's, it's okay. Like it's okay to make mistakes. None of us know what we're doing all the time. And that's part of what makes parenting, the <laughs> parenting, the hardest job in the world. It is. Yeah. Why does it have to be so hard? <laughs> I guess that, I that's a whole other podcast. No, but I, I totally agree. I mean, as, as, as a psychologist, I have seen my adult clients achieve some amazingly beautiful moments of reunification and reconciliation with parents in adulthood. And, you, you know, when, whenever that's possible, it's not always possible. When it is possible, it, it's always nice to see that come together. And I, I would say as a general statement, it, it, it is never too late. Uh, Melinda, I want to give you the last word here. This is your chance to have sort of an auditory billboard. Uh, if, if there's maybe one takeaway or, or one thing that you'd like folks to walk away with from this conversation, perhaps as an invitation to check out the book and, and, and dive a little deeper, what message would you like to put out there? What, what would be sort of maybe a last word for you on this topic and what we've talked about today? I would say one of the biggest themes that kept coming up as I looked into different areas of research on child development um, was to have more conversations with kids about sort of like 
awkward things, messy things, you know, nuanced things. Like we were just talking about with, if you talk to somebody on the phone and you lie, you know, to then afterwards say here, here's, you know, let's talk about why I just did that and, and what I was thinking and why I made that choice. These kinds of conversations where we're sharing with our kids, you know, the, the decisions we're making as parents, we're talking with them about really gnarly things. Like maybe it's race or sexism or pornography or sex. These are really complicated topics. And I think sometimes as parents, we think of complicated topics as sort of off limits with our kids, like, oh, they don't need to know about this, or they're too young to learn about this. Let's protect their innocence. When actually the complicated things are the things we should be talking about with our kids the most, because these are the things that are that are just so nuanced and, and so difficult. And we want to help our kids figure out how to think about them. And every time we have a conversation about something that's that's nuanced and complicated and, and messy, we are sharing our values. We're sharing our worldview. Um, so obviously you need to be age appropriate and you also don't want to burden your kids with, you know, too much as we talked about, it's a balance. Um, but I think generally we tend to avoid having difficult conversations with our kids. And I think that we should lean in a little bit more to those. Um, and, and, and that can be really, really constructive for kids. And the research really backs that up in a lot of different areas that, you know, having these conversations actually helps and does not hurt our kids. Wonderful. I love that. And if I reflect on the conversations I was having with my parents versus the ones I'm having with my children, strictly as a function of maybe the eighties versus, you know, the era that we're in now, there's just, there's just a level of candor now that, you know, you can have with your children that just was not accessible back then. It was just not the way that most families spoke, you know, for, for whatever reason. Melinda, where can people find you if they want to learn more, if they want to, you know, follow the work that you do? Yes. So I have a website that is kind of like a one-stop shop. Um, it's melindawennermoyer.com. Um, you can, there's purchase links for my book there, which my book is really for sale. It should be at any bookstore. Um, uh, but I also have a newsletter, um, which is called Is My Kid the Asshole? And it's um, very much related to my book content in the sense that I'm essentially um, answering parent questions about challenging kid behavior and kind of helping to explain why kids behave the way they do sometimes and what we as parents can do to respond constructively. Um, and you can sign up for my newsletter though, through my website, um, as well. And it's, um, yeah, it's melindawennermoyer.com. So that's probably the best place to go. And Insta I'm on Instagram and Twitter, but again, those are all accessible through my website too. Excellent. Well, we'll put all that in the uh, show notes. The book is How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. It is an absolute tour de force as far as synthesizing a huge amount of inf information. So Melinda, thank you so much for writing this book. For anyone who's interested in parenting or attachment or raising reasonable human beings, uh, this will be a great stop for them. So <laughs> thank you so much. Take really good care. Appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. For me too. Well, take good care and uh, would love to chat with you again and uh, hope we can soon. Yes, sounds great. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.